You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 11th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster. On today's show, Theresa May will update the country on her Brexit negotiations on Tuesday, as she rejects a plea by the opposition leader for Britain to stay in the EU customs union. Is a hard Brexit unavoidable? Then... As the first woman elected to the United States Senate from the state of Minnesota... To announce my candidacy for President of the United States. Minnesota Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar is running for president in the U.S. 2020 election. Does she have what it takes to make it all the way to the White House? My guests Nina Schick and Brian Klass will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including get a job and pay no taxes if you're a woman with four kids or more. Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban unveils plans to boost the population and have a migrant-free labour market. All that plus... How did a song recorded 25 years ago by a band nobody has heard of grab the number one slot in Japan's music charts? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the political commentator Nina Schick and Brian Klass. He's the assistant professor in global politics at University College London and he's also a columnist for the Washington Post. Welcome both of you to the programme. Now, we've just 46 days to go and still counting until Britain leaves the European Union. Prime Minister Theresa May will update the House of Commons on her progress on Tuesday. Whether she'll have anything tangible to report, of course, is another question. She's yet to find a way of unlocking the impasse over the backstop, which ensures there's no hard border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic, while Brussels says it won't renegotiate her withdrawal agreement. Yet, despite this, a flurry of letters have been exchanged between Mrs May and the opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn, and it appears they may have found some common ground. Nina, it is Valentine's Day in a few days' time, so you could argue that maybe this is a political love letter exchange that's going on. But look, let's look ahead to Tuesday. What do you think we can expect to hear from Mrs May? And has she made any real progress on the Brexit story? Because if you're a cynic, you'd say no. (laughs) No, and that's not being a cynic. That's just being a realist, uh, really. Uh, What Theresa May is doing is running the clock down. That is her strategy that ultimately um, enough Labour MPs with the kind of tacit approval of Jeremy Corbyn and enough MPs in her own party who are afraid of a no-deal Brexit will eventually come around and support her deal. Um, There are only three ways really out of this mess. It's either going to be Theresa May's deal with the backstop. The backstop is not going to be removed so we can page all ERG members and let them know, you know, that's never going to happen. Or it's going to be basically what Jeremy Corbyn has put on the table, which is um, a permanent customs union with the EU or um, an odial Brexit. But we're still not there yet. And I think you might see some 11th hour extension of Article 50. Um, But it is really getting tight. But we haven't reached the climax yet. Yeah, well, there are 46 days to go, so anything can change between now and then. But this is an interesting point, Brian, that uh, the possibility that she is trying to run the clock down so that it really does boil down to 
my deal or no deal at all, which nobody wants to risk, or the possibility that maybe we'll go for an extension of Article 50. If I, if I said, look, put a bet, which way do you think this is going to go? Where would your gambling instinct take, take you? Um, gosh, that is... And a, don't that, say that's... I don't gamble. That's not good enough. No, I'm not, I'm not going to say that. But I, I, I mean, I think a no deal is looking increasingly likely. Um, I do think that the extension is probably the most likely. Um, and the, the reason, I mean, I think that Nina's absolutely right. This running the clock down strategy is to put more pressure on MPs to accept her deal. But that's extremely reckless, right? I mean, there are people who are willing to roll the dice with no deal. And there has been a very misleading and I think dangerous political gamesmanship going on here where people are telling the public that this will actually be fine. And it won't. I mean, I think that, the, you know, if you actually talk to people who understand how the economy works, this will cause real pain to people who cannot tolerate that type of pain. People who are not well off in society will pay the highest price. But then let me jump in here. And I want to throw this point to both of you, because uh, there are people who, well, there, there are opinions divided on this, because on the one hand, there are people who hear this and they say, look, this is Project Fear. But then on the other hand, there are some members of the public who are saying, OK, so there may be hardship, but better that rather than staying in a union that controls our lives, it controls our freedoms, that we don't really have the right to operate as a country. We can't actually make trade deals on our own because we're stuck inside this union. So how would you answer but that? Isn't that amazing how the debate has moved on? Two years ago, when we were fighting the referendum campaign, nobody ever said, you know, it might end in a no-deal Brexit and you'll probably get poorer and we don't care anyway. I mean, this is a pure emblem of how emotive this issue has become and it's not based in reality. It's so based in human emotions. So the idea that you have Brexiteers now saying, um, you know what, it might hurt, but that's fine because, you know, a bit of rationing did us good in the post-World War days. I mean, this is insane that a government is literally allowed it to get to this point where we're 46 days away from leaving and we might be leaving with a no-deal Brexit. The fact that's even on the table is insane and we should never forget that. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's two points to make here too. That One is if you, if you ever want to stump somebody who is sort of a, a Brexit voter, one of the quick questions to ask is what specific laws would you repeal? from the EU. And that question stumps a lot of people. They're, the, the diehard Brexiteers in the sort of, in the Tory party and the ERG, they have, they have answers for that. But a lot of voters don't. And I think that is, is exactly what you're talking about, Nina, that it's become this emotive issue about taking back sovereignty and control, which I don't think anybody really thinks that's happening right now. It doesn't look like Theresa May holds all the cards. And the second point here is I think, you know, as we careen towards the no deal Brexit, it is there's this Brexit cycle that happens where first it becomes project fear. That's not going to happen. It's project fear. It's fear mongering. Then it becomes clear it's going to happen. That's what people voted for. Instantly repeat, right? You start with this thing that this is, this is completely impossible. And then when it becomes obvious that it will happen, you say 17 million people voted for this. And at some point we just have to say, no, that's not actually what the debate was about. Let's pick up on some other points as well, because it's the strategy of actually running it to the clock that eventually, if Mrs May gets her own way, people will say, look, it's really not worth the risk. So we might as well just go with with what she put down before, however unpalatable that may be to us. But look, isn't there also the possibility that if that, again, a spanner could come up the works in in this case, the the DUP, because they are the, the party that's propping her up. They do not want to have this backstop. And as far as they're concerned, look, you know what? If you're not going to budge on this, then we're just going to have to pull the plug on you. And if we have to force a general election, then so be it. 
They could obfuscate the decision. So you could kick the can further down the road by having an extension of Article 50 or, you know, having an extension of Article 50 in the general election. I don't see how that fundamentally changes the choices that are on the table. And more importantly, it won't fundamentally change the EU's view on the backstop, which, by the way, if you actually read the backstop, you'll see how the EU has made tremendous concessions to the UK. Because let's not forget that the backstop only exists because it's the Conservative Party's own agenda to leave the single market and the customs union. And there has to be some kind of external border at the EU's external border, right? Uh, or, or checks. So um, if the DUP or the ERG insist upon the removal of a backstop, and it literally comes to that point in the debate where Theresa May says to the EU, you will either remove the backstop or it's going to be a no-deal Brexit. I think the EU will opt for the no-deal Brexit. Even though the argument there is that, look, if Britain crashes out, it's not just going to hurt us, it's going to hurt you as well. Yeah, but I think this has been the the dynamic that people in Britain have misunderstood for a long time is that the pain is shared 27 ways on the other side and it's shared one way on this side. And so, you know, when you look at actual impacts, there are certainly parts of France and Germany in particular that will have some pain from a no deal. But a lot of parts of the EU will have much, much more minor pain. And and Britain is going to be the, the worst hit by this. So, you know, the political calculation from day one on June 24th, 2016, after the referendum was, was, was pretty clear. I mean, I, I wrote an op-ed that day that said, Look, all the politicians negotiating on the EU side have staked their political careers on making sure the EU project succeeds. They will weather a slight dip for a short period of time in their economies, and the UK will have to weather a significant economic storm for a much longer period of time. So, you know, the the idea that the economic pressure on the EU leaders would be so great and they would eventually cave, that's this myth that's been peddled for two years. It hasn't happened. At some point now, you know, seven weeks away, we have to understand this is a myth. It's not going to happen and proceed accordingly. Okay, let's let's bring it back to the now, because we do know that these letters have been exchanged between Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May. And they've said that, Yes, they have found some common ground. But more specifically, Mrs May has rejected Jeremy Corbyn's appeal for Britain to stay in a permanent EU customs union. What is this common ground, apart from the very obvious, we want what's best for Britain? (laughs) Uh, I I think the common ground is that both leaders are obviously uh, playing party politics. So there's some common ground there. But no, um, they're talking to each other. That's the common ground, because let's not forget that only a few weeks ago, Jeremy Corbyn was refusing to talk to Theresa May. But I think that we mustn't be fooled by their quote unquote common ground, because both leaders know that if they were to work together, that would split potentially either their party or their vote. So for Theresa May, if she actually went with Corbyn's proposal for a permanent customs union, that is something you could actually take to the EU and negotiate. So you could move the deadlock forward at least on the EU side. However, it would split her party. And that is exactly the calculus that Jeremy Corbyn has in mind when he even offered this kind of olive branch to her because he knew the Conservatives are never going to go for this. And that's good for him because if if he did do a deal with Theresa May, then it would split his own party, which, of course, is full of uh, not the MPs, but his uh, voting base, which is full of Brexiteers and Remainers. So it suits both leaders just fine. But they're not actually they're not actually serious in terms of moving forward on substance. You see, what fascinates me, Brian, is that it's all very well and good to actually ex- exchange letters and talk, be it face to face or over the telephone. But it's happening now. Shouldn't this have happened yeah. when Mrs May actually won the leadership contest and this was her chance to actually say this is my party you either back me or just get lost 
Yeah, I mean, I think that this is this is something that just if anyone watching this has got to be appalled by politicians, right? I mean, you wonder why politicians are hated. And it's this behavior. I mean, the UK hasn't been clear about what their position is, what they want out of a deal, which makes them extremely slippery to negotiate with. But on top of that, I mean, the cynicism that Nina just explained is is completely accurate. But I mean, what are, what is their job? They're supposed to be doing things to help people, and I think that gets lost in this. Is there? You know, you're thinking about the next election, and this is a a seismic shift in Britain's social, political, security, economic relationship with the European Union, its largest trading partner. And we're seven weeks away, and still people are playing politics. And I think, you know, when people talk about how this will hurt democracy if you don't deliver a Brexit on the referendum count, I think it's hurting democracy by how cynically these politicians are behaving uh, and rolling the dice with Britain's future. Okay, well, let's move on now to the United States, in fact. Clarity? Well, we're going to get it because the Minnesota Senator, Amy Klobuchar, is the latest Democrat to join an ever-expanding list of candidates prepared to take on Donald Trump in the 2020 US presidential election. Ms. Klobuchar has cast herself as a woman whose working-class roots makes her the ideal person to reach out and win back the Midwestern towns and cities that contributed to Mr. Trump's victory in 2016. But will that be enough to take her all the way to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Brian, you're a Minnesotan, yeah? I am indeed, yeah. Uh, what do you think of her? What do you know of her? Yeah, so I, I've met Amy Klobuchar a few times. Um, she's she's one of these politicians who has really grown a, a reputation for quiet pragmatism in the Senate. Um, she's she's a, a Democrat, uh, more in the sort of Hillary Clinton wing of the party than the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. And she's won a lot of praise from Republicans who that, that there was a story out today how some of the Republicans are worried they're going to sink her candidacy by, by praising her because of how polarized the, <laughs> the country is. But I mean, she's sponsored mostly non-controversial bills, worked on a bipartisan basis. She's from the Midwest, which is a swing vote area. Uh, Minnesota, by the way, has voted for the Democratic candidate in the presidential election since 1972. It has the longest streak uh, of any state in the U.S. But, uh, you know, the one big barrier to her is that she's not a household name outside of the really diehard Democrats. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of people reading the stories this morning about her launch, it will have been the first time they've heard her name. And that might be a problem for her when she goes up against the likes of people like potentially Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or Beto O'Rourke, who have better name recognition. But is that necessarily a problem, Lena? Because, I mean, I look in to American politics, the the spectator, the outside spectator, and I go far enough back to, to remember when Bill Clinton was actually put forward as the Democratic candidate when he ran in his first term. Nobody had heard of him apart from the fact he played a saxophone. Um, he also got caught up in sex scandals and was re- rebranded Slick Willie, but he still went on to win. But the point about it was that nobody had really heard about him. So does, does, isn't, that, isn't that an advantage, being a bit of a dark horse coming out from nowhere? Yeah, it certainly doesn't mean the writing is on the wall for her. And one might actually argue that in, in the next election in the United States, it would be better for a new figure to take on Trump rather than an old establishment, i.e. swamp figure like Joe Biden, um, because he can accuse of being, you know, part of the establishment and the swamp. Um, I'm interested in the fact that she kind of is posing herself or putting herself forward as a compromise candidate, because if you look at the polarization mm. in U.S. politics, also the kind of same polarization that you start to see here in the United Kingdom. But, you know, of course, the U.S. always does start things. to see here. I thought we were polarized Bigger already. and better first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
um, then it's almost like I don't think that voters will want a centrist candidate. Will they want a compromise candidate? I think it's really interesting when you see, you know, after the midterms, that batch of young or, or women senators who are now in the U.S. Senate or in the House who have defined themselves in opposition to Trump. Sure. And I think that that will be very important in the 2020 election. Yeah, I mean, let, let's take this point because she is seen as, as a unifying candidate, certainly somebody who can actually practice bipartisan politics in its truest form. But can she bring together the factions amongst the Democrats? Because you said, Brian, that she represents the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. And then you've got this new generation of younger, mainly female-led uh, people in, in the party who say, look, you know, we're from the Sanders wing. We are actually quite left-wing. Some of them perhaps are more left-wing than Bernie Sanders himself. Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing about the U.S., primary system is that it operates on two parallel tracks. There's caucuses, which have a much smaller turnout, and there's primaries. And if you look at 2016, Bernie Sanders did pretty well in in caucuses, which had much wider turnout, much smaller turnout. Um, Primaries decide who wins, though. And so, you know, I think in some of the in, in the early caucus, which is Iowa, normally you would think, okay, a centrist would not do as well. But Iowa is directly south of Minnesota. And those voters can very much uh, see themselves voting for Klobuchar. So I think the Midwest thing could build her some momentum. She's a very smart politician. She has threaded the needle very well in Democratic Party politics to date. And what was really interesting is in 2018, two Minnesota senators were on the ballot uh, in the in the midterm elections because Al Franken had resigned. Uh, Tina Smith, who, who I previously worked with, and, the, and then Amy Klobuchar. And They're both sort of similar politically, but Klobuchar won by a significantly higher margin with exactly the same electorate, which means she was able to win crossover voters. So that could be very appealing because the Democrats right now in the polling, more Democrats are saying they care about winning than they care about principle. Mm. And Trump has focused the mind for Democratic Party voters in that way to say, you know what? There's a lot of bells and whistles we'd like, but we'd like them a lot less if Donald Trump is in the White House. (laughs) Yeah, and let's talk about some of these issues because she's campaigning on matters like money and politics, climate change and also election reform. So how well will those subjects actually resonate with the American public, given that, you know, Trump has gone in the make America great again. Everyone's been picking on us, taking advantage. It's time to kick back. So I think they will resonate very, very well with a certain part of the electorate. Um, And, you know, that is exactly my earlier point about the kind of polarization of politics. If you're a a Trump voter, then you probably don't care about climate change. But you can be pretty sure that anyone who's a Democratic voter is going to care deeply about climate change. So I would be interested to see how these Democratic candidates campaign on these issues, which I think will... Uh, be chosen very carefully in order to set them directly in opposition to Donald Trump. Okay, then. Well, look, there's plenty more to talk about that. But sadly, time goes against us. But I'm sure we'll return to it in the course of the week. And of course, if she does herself actually make it as the candidate, it'll be interesting to see a trade-off between Klobuchar and Donald Trump in 2020. Perk up and tackle Monocle's Fit February issue. This is an essential guide for those looking to get in fighting shape for 2019. First up, we take a look at the people leading the way in whittling their nation's waistlines from Qatar to Tonga to Norway. On to the business section, where we sit down with Airbus's CEO to talk about what's in store for aviation before checking out the company's streamlining and speeding up deliveries. In culture, we meet Rome's top art restorers and in design, 
we touch down in Palma to meet Olab, the smart architecture firm that's transformed a palace into a sleek hotel. Monocle's February issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliette Foster, and my guests Nina Schick and Brian Klass. Now, Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban has come up with an intriguing way to boost the country's population. He's promised that working women with four or more children won't have to pay income tax. The populist leader, whose Fidesz party won a third consecutive electoral victory last year, said that getting Hungarian families to have more children was preferable to allowing Muslim immigrants to enter the country's labour market. Now, Brian, I use the word solution very, very guardedly. And what fascinates me is how it's been greeted by the Hungarian public generally. And do they seriously believe this is going to work? Oh, I hope not. I mean, this is everything coming out of Hungary in the last few years has been so depressing, and this is just so so nakedly cynical, um, racist, bigoted. I mean, there's so many things to say negatively about it. I think to put it in the broader perspective, you know, Freedom House came out with its rankings uh, last week about how free various countries are around the world, and now you know Hungary was downgraded to partly free. It's a semi-authoritarian state in Europe, part of the EPP, you know, uh, parliamentary group in the European Union, and so. You know, I think that this is one of those wake-up calls that this is, you know, effectively a white nationalist regime with authoritarian leanings. Uh, that's a, but but clearly people like it because well, you know they they voted him back. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are bigoted uh, in the world. I mean, it's it's one of those things where there's a domestic consumption for this audience um, that that Orban is playing to, and some of them might like this. There's also a question of internationally, what do you know, this is in the European Union, and at some point, Europe has a responsibility to push back against this type of policy and 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 racist language. I mean, Orban's stuff about George Soros, you know, being behind every conspiracy that he could possibly cook up, and and some of the ways he's talked about Jews in the past, it's just disgusting. And this is one of those tests where it says, you know, what values does Europe have? And I, I think this policy again is one where where it's clear where they stand. But but then let, let's let's look at that point, Nina, the idea of Europe pushing back. How can it push back? Because, look, it does seem that a lot of its energy is being sucked up by Brexit. And that has and because of that, if you like, it's made it possible for people like Viktor Orban to push forward these ideas and pretty much express them, not just unchallenged at home, but unchallenged in the EU chamber. Well, yeah, so there is no doubt that the EU's political arena is full of problems. And of course, I would say that rather than Brexit, the the biggest problem facing the EU is the existential one that started in 2015 with the quote unquote migration crisis. And what Orban is doing very cynically, and he is an illiberal and skillfully illiberal authoritarian leader, is playing to people's worst fears in order to establish his own regime and his own authority. So there are no migrants in Hungary, first of all. So if this policy even comes into play, you know, there there is no risk of any Muslim migrants taking over, you know, Hungary's labor market. There are none in Hungary. But what he has done very, very well uh, and which other European leaders in um, Central and Eastern Europe have followed suit with is play this 
uh, culture war fear, you know, that the white Christians of the West are going to be outbred by the Muslim invading hordes, quote unquote. So this is an issue where there is no easy answer and it is an issue that is live. I think it's the most potentially divisive issue that we've seen in the EU's history, bigger than the Eurozone crisis, bigger than Brexit, this existential issue about quote-unquote Christian values or migration and fears uh, fears that are being played on by leaders like Orban about what that means for but, Europe's future. But let's let's look at look at something else here. It, it is this this the the idea that I mean typically what tends to happen, Brian, is that you you may have people campaigning on a, on a platform which seems a little bit extreme, and once they get into office, the reality of government confronts them. In other words, they can't deliver on what they said was possible. There's been no sign of a rowing back with this guy. Well, that's because, I mean, this is classic for what authoritarian-style strongmen do because when they can't deliver and populists have, you know, not delivered, is they need to blame somebody. So in this mm-hmm. case, it's, it's cooking up blame. It's, it's, it's blaming migrants who don't even live in Hungary for problems that could be existing or it's blaming the EU and you bash those two and then you can get a fair amount of mileage out of people saying, actually, it is them, not us, that's to blame. Um, and I think, you know, that Orban is, is somebody who is playing, as Nina said, a culture war. But it also, it's a really interesting strain of populism because with Poland as well, it's hard to look at either of those countries and say this is economic populism, right? This sort of Mm. divide of, oh, it's people who have been upset by globalization. I mean, take anybody in Poland, any sector of this economy, they're better off than they were 25 years ago. And still there's this sort of cultural anti-immigrant populism that's playing very well in both countries. And so I, I do think that there's you know, there's skill involved with this, but it is difficult to say, uh, you know, that that it's going to come to any sort of fruition, that Orban's going to stay in power just off these two, uh, you know, sort of scapegoats. So eventually he'll find something else that he can actually bang on about. OK, let's move on now to our final, final part of Midori House. I'm going to ask a question before you answer it. Do you recognise this? Okay, well, we don't have a camera in this studio, but I can tell you that my guests look slightly puzzled. So in answer to my question, I guess you don't recognise it? Can't say I do. Okay. Well, it was actually a track called Over Your Shoulder, (laughs) and it was recorded a quarter of a century ago by Dinosaur Jr., a band that very few people, including the ones in this studio, appear to have heard of. Despite their anonymity... That song has topped Japan's music charts, even surpassing the latest offering of Ariana Grande. Now, even I admit that I've heard about Ariana Grande. So the big question, how did the dinosaur come back from extinction? Now, we're not talking about the reptiles, of course. We're talking about about the bands, this band. But, I mean, look, um, from what I understand, this song did really well on YouTube, even though it didn't have a YouTube release. So I guess that if you want to be very successful 25 years after you recorded something, streaming is the answer? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I think I think there is something to this in the sense that it's not just for music; it's also for for films and video. I mean, it used to be that if you wanted to watch something, you had to tune in at you know Sunday night at seven p.m. or whatever, and now you can revive it. I mean, from my own affinity for Japanese culture, I like um, Iron Chef Japan, which is a late nineteen nineties uh, sort of reality cooking show that I've gotten a into. cooking show. Yeah, I mean, okay. it, it's amazing. They, they have uh, four different Japanese chefs that emerge from the floor with dry ice, and they, I mean, it's very <laughs> eccentric. Um, 
but like you know it wasn't it, it wasn't something that was well known in, in the states and then youtube has revived it to me so you know maybe maybe this is a, a different model of media the same is true for netflix by the way where, where shows that you know died on mainstream networks end up getting a second life on netflix Nina. Yeah, and I love that this is, is it number one in Japan? Yes, right it's now? number yeah, one it's, in Japan, apparently. <laughs> and that is exactly where you would expect it to go number one, wouldn't you? Like, because I, I love how in Japan they have interesting, what's on their charts is always like obscure and interesting and sometimes really mainstream. Um, but yeah, it's clearly a sign of how the music industry is changing. Uh, I had read before, you know, that people like Ariana Grande, they're not releasing albums anymore. They're just going for hit after hit after hit. Um, and there's no need to do all the traditional album release with all the work that's associated to it. So uh, good for the dinosaurs, you know. Yeah, but you see, 25 I, years later. But I'm I'm a dinosaur. And this is a really terrible thing to say. And I have to admit, I didn't do this. But when I was at school, you know, there were kids who were going to various clubs and things and they were raving about bands and they were actually scrawling their names on the London Underground. So, you know, I could go on the London Underground and heard about a band called Ken Dodd's Dad's Dog's Dead. <laughs> I mean, try saying that when you're sober. But I mean, you know, I, I, is it is it right for people like me to feel stranded in this, this new musical landscape? Well, I, I mean, I think it is changing how I think about my childhood. And it was, you know, you go and you save up and you buy a CD, but then you're sort of, you're really committed, right? I mean, it's like you've taken your, your allowance money and you've bought one CD with, with things like Spotify. You know, you can sort of dabble in different things. And, and who knows, maybe, you know, I'll go home and discover... Dinosaur Junior, maybe they have a related band, Dinosaur Senior, that I could. Right, so, so are, are either, very, very briefly, are either of you guys actually going to look for the album at all? Do you feel inspired enough? <laughs> I might listen like, to the song. It sounded like bad nineties music. Yeah. Didn't it? Ooh, <laughs> you're going to upset all those fans out there, guys. We're going to have to leave it. But Nina Shook and Brian Glass, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was show was produced by Marcus Hippie, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and our studio manager was. Christy Evans. More music next than at 1900 hours. It is the Monocle Culture Show. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye. <laughs>